The Lord be with you. Herod Antipas was a real creep. And not just in a Harvey Weinstein sort of way. And just to be clear, in case you're getting your King Herods of the Bible mixed up, which is an easy thing to do because there are six of them, and a couple Herodiuses, just to make things even more complicated, Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. You probably remember that guy, right? Because he was the one who met with the Magi, who were on their way to visit the Christ child. And he was the guy that sat down with those experts and he interpreted the Hebrew prophecies. Also, he could carry out a localized slaughter of the innocents. What a grim legacy. So for Herod Jr., it would be understandably a difficult thing to live under the shadow of someone named the Great. Wondering if maybe they're ever going to give you a great nickname, carrying on the legacy of that famous family, famous for their political sort of deviance, for their murder, for really beautiful and expensive building projects. Cruelty, cowardice, paranoia, opulence, pride, lust, you know, the usual assortment. He was probably fearing that one day he would have to do something terrible, maybe. Something awful in his fight to stay in power, his fight to stay relevant. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that John the baptizer was arrested by this Herod, the second Herod, for publicly criticizing Herod's politically disastrous and embarrassing divorce and subsequent remarriage to his half-brother's wife. This was happening right when Jesus was calling his disciples into ministry. Later on, you might remember that in Matthew 11, John is still in prison, and he's sending word to Jesus saying, Are you really the real deal? Is all this sacrifice and suffering part of something big? Is this ministry really the work of God's anointed one? Jesus famously replies, Go back and report to John what you have seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. In Matthew chapter 14, we're given a little glimpse into the life of Herod Antipas, a scene that some have noted makes a sort of dark and perverse and horrific mirror image of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's all right there. Selfish wealth and revenge and hatred and anger and lust, even the making of oaths and some murder. The megalomaniac that he is, Herod Jr., is throwing one of his famous birthday parties. And when his stepdaughter does a dance for him, he pulls one of those crazy, arrogant king show-off stunts, offering her anything that she would ask of him, and then even making an oath to seal the deal. Maybe he thought that she would ask for some free real estate or a cushy cabinet appointment or maybe a solid gold Lamborghini. But that's not what she did. At her mother's request, we probably know the story. She remembered those old insults, and she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. I don't know about many of you, but there's a chance that maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. 
when they were telling me the story of the loaves and the fishes. This is the part of the story that always seemed to get left out. When people told me that story, they were skipping over that critical piece there in that tiny little line. Now when Jesus heard what had happened to John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desert place by himself. Now I've heard lots of sermons that tell us that Jesus was really in touch with his personal needs and Jesus understood self-care and times of prayer, or that the mystical Jesus needed space for meditation. And you've probably heard the Protestant work ethic sneak in there too. This was a time for Jesus to recharge his batteries so that he could get back into ministry again. And sure, there might be something to those observations, but let's not overlook the fact that these little lines of text are showing us a grief-stricken Christ carrying a heavy burden of loss into the desert. Jesus is heartbroken. He's angry. He's disgusted. He's mourning the death of his second cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner and announcer of his ministry. The great prophet in the spirit of Elijah, led by the spirit since infancy. The one who was called Israel to repentance, the one who, was bapti- who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. You may remember a few weeks back when Jesus' words told us, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. And so today's reading starts off with this grim report. Jesus has heard that John the Baptist is dead. This is a tragedy. This is an outrage. A great man, God's man, dead at the hand of a wicked man. It's worth noting that this passage also marks a turning point in the trajectory of Jesus' life. This is a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of Jesus' own path. A path towards a Jerusalem that would lead to suffering and violence, injustice, and the schemes of wicked men. Most of us have turning points like this in our life. Times of shock and loss, not unlike this one. Some of you are old enough to remember the assassination of Dr. or Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy or someone like that. Sometimes we just look at the political landscape and the global history in horror as tin pot dictators and charlatans and scoundrels exact a terrible price of violence and selfishness on innocent people. Sometimes it's a positive. And we are moved with an encounter by someone we love and respect. Sometimes it's the loss of such a person that shakes us up, challenging us, calling into question everything we thought we knew. I think it's safe to say that this continuing pandemic has most of us in a state something like this almost every day. Maybe you're feeling a bit more raw a little more receptive, aware of your vulnerability and your frailty. 
In the stress and isolation of these COVID days, it doesn't take much to move us and to shake us. I know it's been happening to me. Like this, just the other day thing that happened. My dog was bitten by a wasp. And we thought, okay, fair enough. She's going to have a bump on her face. But no, she was acting like fragile and sad and pathetic, this normally proud little dog. The following morning, I picked her up and I took the little wiener dog, picture a little black wiener dog, outside and we sat under the apple tree and I thought, you know, I want to see her do her perimeter rounds, sniffing all the corners of the fence. But instead, she just sat there next to me with the saddest look on her face, occasionally sniffing the wind and then looking up at me. And we sat there in the grass for a good 30 minutes. And in those minutes, I was struck by the frailty and the mortality of that little dog. I noticed how gray her whiskers were getting around her face. And I was struck by the frailty and the mortality of every living thing. And the sun shone down and the wind blew in the apple tree when I sat and touched the grass. Like I said, I'm vulnerable in these COVID days just like everybody else. Jesus wanted to be alone by himself in the desert with the sand and the stones, the coarse grasses and the dry winds and the wild spirit of creation. That's where he wanted to be. And this is where the feeding hungry people in the wilderness story happened. The grieving Jesus, hoping to pull back from some time away, away from the overwhelming needs of the world. But a Restless and relentless crowd does not have the capacity or the sensitivity to give a Messiah a little space. The pressing requests of desperate people will not be satisfied until they get a chance to say their peace, to bring their needy loved ones for care, to make their cases for a healing or a miracle or a message, or even just some words of hope or encouragement, a sign or a prayer, a call to action even. What lengths will desperate people go to when they are offered even the slightest glimmer of hope? But as it turns out, someone let it slip. And Jesus' getaway plan goes public. And while he is making his way to the other side of the lake in a boat, the people are running on foot to meet him in the desert. The desperation of the multitude the frantic hustle, people dusty, sweaty, out of breath, anxious people who can't even wait to get to be where the Lord is. Even if it means running out into the desert without making any plans or thinking it through. When Jesus finally gets where he is going, Instead of finding a wilderness retreat and some time alone, he finds a gathering of breathless, anxious, needy bodies, carrying with them sick and needy loved ones. 
And then the text simply says, Jesus had compassion for them and cured their sick. And then comes the awkward part, where a whole horde of people found themselves out in the boonies without any food, and 12 irritated disciples who quite naturally wish to send the crowds away. And the story of the miracle of five loaves and two fishes, which become a feast in the desert. Jesus looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all ate and were filled. It's fair to say this is a stark contrast to the insecure vassal king in his castle throwing a lavish party for himself, celebrating and bragging and offering for display and gruesome effect the severed head of a prophet. The Jesus way is an alternative to greed and power and violence and selfishness. It is the way of peace and humble sustenance. The compassionate Christ, even in his times of deepest sorrow, looks upon the crowds, looks at those needy folks and desperate people with love and care, blessing troubled hearts, healing sick bodies, feeding hungry bellies. The love of Christ in this world is shaped and formed in the grief and the pain and the loss as the one who walked this earth, the one who contended with tyrants and scoundrels, violence and monstrous abuses of power. Even as we do now. Friends, this story is the generous heart of God laid bare. And we are a part of that dusty, anxious, breathless, didn't plan for this, couldn't even think to plan for it. We're a part of that crowd. Chasing down our maker with our questions and requests and prayers and petitions and whispers in the night. Do you really care about what's going on here, God? Are you really, are you really listening? Do you see me? Do you even have what it takes to help us? Is there even enough grace in this universe for the rest of us? The least of us? The worst of us? Jesus' answer is fleshed out in that simple meal in the desert. The fashioning of our humble offerings into miracles and blessings for many. The assurance that we are seen, we are known, and our Maker has compassion on us. Much of the task and the great miracle of the church is lived out and found in this exact sort of gathering. A crowd of people who look to heaven and give thanks, breaking and freely sharing the bread. And all ate and are filled. 
Amen.